you can't escape the influence of the Habsburg dynasty, even today, when you visit Vienna or Budapest. If you hop on a tram in Budapest and cross various city districts, they are all named after Habsburg rulers. Coming up, we'll hear how the most important family in European history left its stamp on what you see today. The Habsburgs conquered these lands not through war, but through marriage. Understanding the differences between Britain and America sometimes requires a little gentle ribbing. Things really are quite a lot bigger here, physically bigger, and it doesn't just stop at the size of the United States. Lawrence Brown tells us what was lost in the pond between the U.S. and the U.K. And hear how learning a bit of Arabic gives you an inside track on the people you'll meet in Morocco and Egypt. And Cairo likes to, Kyrenes are very proud of calling their city Umm Dunya, which means mother of the world. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, you can savor Europe's most exciting experiences and sights through a hundred of my favorite travel stories. Imagine hanging from an alpine ridge, dancing at a Turkish circumcision party, and swinging with a bell ringer in a medieval church spire. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com. How do you really get to know another country? And what does it take to appreciate another culture on a deeper level than as a tourist? Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, travel writer Zora O'Neill tells us how her difficulties studying the Arabic language led her to North Africa and the Middle East. Picking up local slang and jokes opened up a whole new insight on life in Morocco, the Gulf States, Egypt, and Lebanon. Or you could marry someone from another country and move there with them. Englishman Lawrence Brown fell in love with an American from Indiana. They married and moved back to the American Midwest. It didn't take long for Lawrence to recognize that a lot of memos that might explain the differences between Britain and America must have gotten lost in the pond. The host of a popular YouTube series that contrasts life in the U.S. and the U.K. joins us in a bit as well. Let's open the hour getting acquainted with the most important royal family in European history. The Habsburgs defined the former Austro-Hungarian Empire. Their rule united Central Europe and reached to Spain, Asia, Africa, and all the way to the Americas. Political science historian Benjamin Curtis writes about the family's influence in his book, The Habsburgs, The History of a Dynasty. Ben lives in Prague. And Esther Bokros is a tour guide from Budapest, where she specializes in walking tours that give context to the elegant facades of the Habsburg Empire. Ben and Esther join us in an interview we recorded before the COVID pandemic. Thanks very much, Rick. Thanks very much, Rick. Now, Ben Curtis, you wrote the book on the Habsburgs, your book, uh, The Habsburgs, A History of a Dynasty. Give us some context. Who are the Habsburgs and, and why do they matter? Well, the Habsburgs are the most important family in European history. Uh, they occupied the highest throne in Europe for almost 650 years. Those were the Holy Roman Emperors. They ruled so many places, all the way from Portugal to Poland, from what's now Serbia to, believe it or not, there's actually a Habsburg who was the titular king of England. So, so much of Europe at one point was ruled by Habsburg. They're everywhere. They really shaped the histories of not only so many different countries, but the progression of the European continent itself for almost 500 years. How could one family shape the progression of the leading continent, really, in the Western world? Uh, they were everywhere, but they were also just very astute. The Habsburgs, there's a famous saying that uh, the Habsburgs conquered these lands not through war, but through marriage. 
and they were very, very smart about getting married into other royal families and finding themselves on the throne of places even like England. So what's an example of some Habsburg royal that did that expertly? Yeah. So the most famous example is Maximilian I, who was the uh, monarch, the, the emperor, in, right around 1500. And he arranged this incredible marital deal whereby the Habsburgs took over what was Burgundy, which was one of the richest kingdoms in Europe around that time. And he also uh, made sure that the Habsburgs would inherit the crown of Spain and the burgeoning Spanish Empire in the New World. All in one generation they did this. What a coup. The Habsburgs did it without firing a shot. Make love, not war. <laughs> That's exactly what that is. Yeah. <laughs> Have a lot of kids and marry them smartly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, Esther, you grew up in Budapest. What do the Habsburgs mean today to a modern young woman in Budapest? Do, do they even matter, or is it just for tourists to look at old buildings? No, not at all. If you hop on a tram in Budapest and cross uh, various city districts, they are all named after Habsburg rulers. So, so you meet them every day. You can't in escape fact. them. No, you can't. Now, did the Habsburgs speak German or did they speak Hungarian? They spoke German, uh, although uh, Sissi was the one who spoke fluent Hungarian. So after she's a, while. a popular Habsburg with the Hungarians? Oh, yes, absolutely. Because I always wonder if the, if the Hungarians in the Austro-Hungarian Empire were considered sort of the uh, ugly sister, sort of the, the poor sister. Did you have an inferiority complex or did you feel the Habsburgs respected Hungary? No, not really. So they were the ugly sister. Absolutely. Hungarians were the ugly sister. Definitely treated that way. Yeah. And uh, there was some so favorite So Sissy, you talk about Sissy like almost like Princess Diana or something. She was like that. Like a hundred years ago, the Princess Diana. Yes, absolutely. She was like that. Who was Empress Sissy? She was a Bavarian princess who was uh, not meant to marry uh, Francis Joseph, but when they met in 1853, Francis Joseph decided not to marry her elder sister, but to marry Sissy. She oh. was a 15-year-old young girl that so time. So the younger sister stole the heart of the yes, big emperor. absolutely. And the rest is a fairy tale history. Mm, not really. Because she was assassinated, wasn't she? She was assassinated in 1898 uh, by an Italian anarchist near Lake Geneva. Hmm. Tour guides Benjamin Curtis and Esther Bokros are introducing us to the family that controlled much of Europe and the world for 650 years, the Habsburgs. Ben also co-hosts a podcast series about Central and Eastern Europe. It's called Eastern Approaches. We have guest links on our website at ricksteves.com radio. Esther Bokros, if you imagine if you if your great 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 grandmother was living in Budapest, looking at the Habsburg Empress or Emperor in the in the eighteen hundreds, what would it feel like to be to be just a normal person in the empire? How would how would you feel good about the emperor and how would you feel bad about the emperor? There would be certainly a fear. A fear. A fear, definitely. And uh, some sort of uh, humbleness as well. Just to be able to see they felt it was a privilege to see, even from a distance. So they really believed this person was almost divine on earth. Yes. They actually believed that. They actually believed that. Now, Ben, if you were a peasant 200 years ago and uh, the emperor was walking down the street, what would go through your mind in Mm -hmm. Vienna? You would think, interestingly, and hard as it might be for North Americans to get their heads around this, a peasant would often think, yes, that man was anointed by God to be my sovereign that God wants them in charge, and you would essentially be okay with that. You would probably accept the social order because that's what you were taught from, you know, the, the sayings that your grandmother told you. And then every time you went to church, guess what? You might see over the pulpit the Habsburg double-headed eagle reinforcing this idea that the Habsburgs and the church and God are all one, and you've got to do what they say. So it really was sort of a 
coordination with the church and the political powers back then. Absolutely. Like, you know, Quite effective. Peas in a pod. Quite mm-hmm. effective. Yeah. Esther, if you're a, a sightseer going to uh, Budapest and you want to understand the grandeur of the Habsburgs, what's a couple of sites you would see for sure to get a feeling of the Habsburg Empire in Budapest? First of all, you need to look at the panorama and look at the city, and uh, then you can spot two bridges which are connected uh, with the Habsburgs because our beautiful green Liberty Bridge that was named Francis Joseph Bridge originally when it was uh, completed, and Francis Joseph hammered the last nail into the bridge. And he was the great uh, emperor, Franz Joseph, that led up to World War One. Yes, exactly. So he ruled uh, a very... How long did Franz Joseph rule, uh, Ben? 67 years, I believe. 67 years. So you've got the bridges. Everywhere you look, you've got the names. And even with revolutions, even with communism coming and going, they don't change the names? They, they keep these Habsburg names in Budapest? Not all of them. Some of them are... are the city districts are completely kept. Uh-huh. And they, they have always been like that. The bridges, they changed names, except Elizabeth Bridge, which was named after Sissi. The bridge itself has changed, unfortunately. It was badly destroyed in the Second World War, but it was also a beautiful bridge. Now, Sissi, every time I think about going to Vienna and going to Budapest, Sissi comes up, and it's almost like it's a, a promotional stunt by the tourist board to bring more tourists. What's the feeling in, in Budapest about Sissi? It is. It's a little bit. But she is very much loved in Hungary because she loved Hungarians. She learned Hungarian and mm-hmm. she spoke fluently. And uh, the royal couple, Francis Joseph and Sissi, was given a beautiful palace in Hungary, which she really adored and she loved to be there. So Franz Joseph, the, the dominant figure of, from 1850 to World War One, he was in love with Sissi. And in Sissi's heart, there was a big place for Hungary. There was, definitely. Very nice. Hey, Ben, when you think about Empress Sisi and the, and the tourism and the marketing, what, what's going on in Vienna? Uh, it's a little cheesy. I mean, Sisi has been romanticized completely. The Princess Di connection is weirdly appropriate in that Sisi was very beautiful. She was kind of this media darling. And to be honest, Sisi was mentally somewhat unstable and she was an unhappy woman. Uh, so she's been romanticized into someone she wasn't actually that person, but there is a little bit of truth to the kind of image. That but you it's see. it's actually fun from a tourism point of view to see this poor little rich girl, you know, trapped in the big palace. Yeah. And she, uh, all this uh, dramatic story, like Princess Diana. Yeah. When you're going to Vienna, you celebrate the culture, and a lot of the culture and the music and the, and the art that we see, really, we can thank the Habsburgs. Oh yeah, the Habsburg stamp is all over Vienna as you would expect it to be, and that's not just in the big palaces but also in the churches that they sponsored and they'd essentially configure the dynasty's power, but even in the museums. The reason why Vienna has such incredible art museums and all these artifacts from centuries and centuries of collecting is because they had the royal family there that was rich, that brought this stuff from all over the world to help uh, demonstrate how uh, wealthy and, and tasteful they were. Great patrons of the art. I mean, we, we can almost say Beethoven, Haydn, Mozart, they wouldn't be the same today had it not been for the patronage of the Habsburgs. That's true. They all went there because there was this great court and there was a lot of money flowing and an artist could make his way that way. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Esther Bolkros and Ben Curtis about the Habsburgs and the impact the Habsburgs had on Vienna and Budapest and why that matters today when we're traveling. Esther, of course, the Habsburgs were thrown out of power with the loss of World War I, but how do the Habsburgs still have an impact? Are there Habsburgs living today in Hungary? What do you have for today's Habsburgs? Whether you believe it or not, today there are 160 Habsburgs living all over the world. 
Really? Did you know that? And are they still important to people? Do they have, some of them, yes. Do they own palaces? Do they have art? Are they involved in politics? Uh, some of them are very much involved in politics. Uh, if you happen to know Otto von Habsburg, the son of the last king, he, uh, he was very much beloved in Hungary. He was very much adored. I've seen him when I was 14 in person. You know, I was in Melk on the Danube River, and the Habsburg... Uh, the ancestor of the Habsburgs, mm-hmm. today's Habsburgs, came and all the little children from school were let out and they sang. It was almost like the queen was coming to town. A lot of respect to this day for Habsburgs. Ben, what's today's Habsburgs in uh, Austria? Yeah, well, so for example, when Otto von Habsburg died, uh, he received essentially a state funeral, right? Which is pretty amazing because he wasn't even allowed in the country for a number of decades so after he's the descendant of Yeah, the... he was the guy who, were there a Habsburg throne, would have been sitting upon it. But so now his, his son, who is kind of the head of the family, and his son has had an interesting career. He was a, a game show host on TV for a while. But now they're in politics, not necessarily in Austria, but they, the Habsburgs have taken on this old idea, I guess, which is they represent something more than one than just one country. They represent a kind of supranational idea of uh, European unification. And so, for example, Otto von Habsburg was a member of the European Parliament, and uh, other Habsburgs have also been involved in European politics at that scale. So bigger than, than ruling one nation, just mm-hmm. a, a gentility and a respect for the elegance of a, of a, of a different age. Yeah, exactly, and the idea of, of bringing nations together in Europe. All right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with the Habsburgs. No, we've been talking about the Habsburgs with two people who are not Habsburgs, but who appreciate the Habsburgs, Esther Bokros from Hungary and Ben Curtis, a professor who has written a book called The Habsburgs, The History of a Dynasty. Ben and Esther, thank you so much for sharing your insight into what Ben called, and I guess we all agree, the most influential family in European history. Thanks, Rick. Thank you very much, Rick. Up next, we take a closer look at what's foreign between the U.S. and Britain. And in a bit, we'll hear how studying Arabic opened up the world for an American traveler. It's Travel with Rick Steves. While that old line says that we Americans and the British are cousins, separated by a common language, turns out that there's a few more differences between our countries that can raise an eyebrow or even make you laugh. In the years since Lawrence Brown left the seaside town of Grimsby, England for the bright lights of Anderson, Indiana, he's noticed enough curiosities to start a YouTube channel about it. Lawrence, his wife, and Kat now live in Chicago, where he hosts an ongoing series of amusing videos and live sessions. It's called Lost in the Pond. Lawrence, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for having me, Rick. So I've long realized that you can learn more about your home sometimes, more about yourself, by actually leaving home and looking at it from a distance. And that's kind of the essence of what your channel does. Uh, you bring us a, a peek at the United States from a British perspective. How did you get into that? Well, I mean, actually, it has its roots in my childhood. I was very fascinated with the United States. Um, From being about the age of 12, I had a book that I took out of my school library. It was an aerial view of the entire 50 states. And from then on, I was hooked. Uh, Over time, I certainly skipping part of my life here, I ended up moving to the United States. And that interest came with me. But at that point, I didn't know anything about America except for what I'd seen in films. And the United States isn't quite how it's presented in the films. You know, you don't have people all the time living in a plush New York City apartment, for example. Um, Not everywhere is beaches and palm trees. And that's very true of the weather. And this just became a kind of fascinating eye-opener to me that I felt I had to share 
not just with people that I know, but with, I suppose, the wider world. So where did you move to in the States? Were you, did you get married and come here or what brought you to the States? So yes, I did actually in that order. I got married in Indiana, went back briefly, and then we moved to the state of Indiana. That's my wife and myself. In 2008, it was just as the recession was taking off and I was laid off from my job in London. And everyone knows the best thing to do during a recession is to move to the town where all of the factories are closing. <laughs> and that's what we did. But there's, there's a reason for that. And that reason is that my wife's parents uh, lived there as well. And we were able to sort of live with them rent free while we sort of got our act together. So 2008, you're just coming in the United States. Okay, you got married to an American. Now you got to live with America. Uh, what are those early impressions? What bothered you? What annoyed you? What did you miss most about your old home? I love looking back on that time um, because I was so naive at the time, at least you know my viewpoint on everything was. And I think the thing, just to touch on your last question there, the thing I miss the most and still do to this day is public transit, is um, cross-country mm trains. We do have Amtrak here, uh, but it couldn't really be considered high-speed rail, and it also doesn't really touch you know, every corner of the US as you might see in Europe, for example. So that is something that I've, I've missed you know, quite heavily since then and continue to do. Um, but in terms of things that annoyed me, I made it kind of my goal when I moved here to just be open to learning the customs, learning the culture of the United States and immersing myself in it. Um, because if I didn't do that, I could end up sort of miserable about the whole thing. And it's if I listen to Brits back home, sometimes when they come and live in the United States, and I've interacted with several that have, they can often take the viewpoint of, oh, I missed this from back home, or I missed these things from back home. And partly it's that kind of viewpoint on living in America that sort of thrust me, shall we say, into doing this YouTube channel. I wanted to sort of set the record straight, as it were. This is Rick Steves. We're talking with the British import Lawrence Brown right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His YouTube channel is Lost in the Pond, and it takes an entertaining look at the differences he's observed between America and England since he moved from jolly old England to the Midwest over a decade ago. You can enjoy his work online at YouTube. It's Lost in the Pond. Lawrence, I love British slang, but I think it's confusing for a lot of people. So I want to get into some weightier topics in a moment. But just define these things for me just in a, in a couple of words. Bonkers. Uh, bonkers just means uh, a bit sort of crazy, a bit zany, a bit out there. Bob's your uncle. Uh, it's another way of saying voila. Uh, we put the food oh. in the oven. Voila. Here it is. I love that. Bob's your uncle. It's one of my favorite phrases. Uh, bloody. I, I like to say bloody, but I get a sense that it might be a little bit rude. I think it's sort of diminished in um, intensity, but it is an intensifier that usually goes before another word. Uh, so you might say, oh, bloody heck. Um, I think it's comical, personally. And I think in that respect, it's not quite as as harsh as some people okay. might think. How, how would you use it again in, in another example? Bloody. It's bloody cold outside? Exactly. I live in Chicago, so it's bloody cold outside here in winter. Well, we use this one for me in a sentence, knickers in a twit. Well, I think that the, the phrase is more like knickers in a twist. It's, uh, it's oh, similar, a twist, actually, okay. in a twist. Yeah, it's, it's right. similar to the American phrase, um, forgive me, panties in a bunch. It just means to, you know, get you kind of, you get frustrated. 
uh, you get your knickers in a twist. Because knickers are panties, right? Exactly. Yep. All right. Gobsmacked. Uh, that means utterly surprised. I was gobsmacked. Exactly. Uh, British people use the word brilliant in ways much more commonly and widely than we do, I think. Brilliant. We do. I use it all the time, actually. And people who I used to work with just thought it was adorable. It got to the point where they'd actually just have me say it, even if I didn't mean it. Uh, they'd stand me in a corner and say, oh, please say brilliant again, because it <laughs> sounds so good coming from you. And I just went along with it. You know, uh, on your on your YouTube channel, you've got how many posts do you have? It just seems like a massive body of work. Oh, that's a good question. I'm going to lie and say a million, but I think it's more like uh, 500, 600, something like that. It's like countless. And and they're all, what, five to 10 minutes long, and they give you a little insight into British uh, take on America. Uh, one of them is 11 words Americans love to hear Brits say. What are a couple of those words? So if I remember correctly, I think, in fact, brilliant uh, was one of those, but yeah. also tomato, uh, squirrel, because we really round out all of the sounds in it, uh, whereas Americans tend to just say it in one, you know, syllable, squirrel. And uh, and Brits always say vinyl instead of vinyl, which always bothered me. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I wonder if that's a regional thing, and that's something else that often comes up in these things, because I certainly say vinyl myself. Oh, you do? Okay. Well, I they do. say, you know, they, there's a, I've seen these grids where if they ask anybody in the United States to say four or five words for something, they can identify exactly what state they come from just by their dialect. And maybe we don't recognize that, but there's clearly regional dialects in England. Oh, absolutely. There's so many dialects in England. And of course, I knew that growing up. And what I didn't know is that the same, as you just said, is true of the United States. And this has been one of the fascinating things for me doing this channel, learning about all of those and conveying that uh, through my own surprise, usually. I mean, I just find out these things. It's amazing. You know, well, how, what is your take on politics and religion on your channel? How, how do you address that when you're comparing the cultures of Britain and America? Uh, it would be on a very specific video that I would do that. Um, I tend to, tend to steer clear of it to some extent just because it kind of is a distraction if you want to be controversial about other things like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, for example. I gave my opinion on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and that that probably got more pushback from my viewers than anything about politics would have done. But in terms of covering it, I, I mean, I did do a little thing uh, a while ago about the Brexit campaign and how I voted to remain in the EU. Um, but I still wanted to do it with a kind of comedic twist, I think. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lawrence Brown. His YouTube channel is Lost in the Pond, and he compares British and American culture from a British perspective. It's just fascinating because we're sort of um, cousins in so many ways, but uh, there's some huge differences between our two ways of organizing our societies. Lawrence, I'd like to get your take on the differences, the, the public approach to these topics. These are hard topics. And just very briefly, from an English point of view, you're very candid, unvarnished kind of take on the British and the American approach. Uh, healthcare. So I, you know, in the United Kingdom, we would walk into a hospital, have a procedure, have whatever it is, and not be billed for it because it's built into our taxation. Whereas here, that's not the case, obviously, mm -hmm. and you will get billed for it later on. And I think that that's quite surprising for British people when you come here. But it's also surprising, I think, for a lot of Americans when you tell them how we have it in Britain. And it's hard sometimes to convince people that most Brits wouldn't give it up. 
So Brits generally like their national health care system. And if you're really rich and you want to get special treatment, you can always opt out of the national and go to some VIP kind of treatment if you can afford it. Is that right? I'm glad you mentioned that, Rick, because that's one of the things that often gets forgotten in this is that, yes, you can. Uh, so you still have that option available. Uh, what's the outlook on abortion in, in Britain compared to in the United States? I think it's far less of a controversial topic in Britain. Um, and that really is tied to how I think religion is less of a front and center thing. We certainly have religious people in Britain. Of course we do. But I think people tend to keep their cards closer to their chest. It's mm. less of a discussed thing. And therefore, questions of abortion or anything that's sort of tied to a religious belief doesn't come out quite as, um, as strongly. What, what was your take on climate change when you moved to the United States and found out people still say it's not happening? Well, I think I did a sort of similar comparison um, looking at data on that because, you know, all across Europe, including Britain, 80, 90 percent of people believe climate change is happening. It's much lower percentage wise in America. And I think some of it comes down to education on such things, but it also potentially, I don't know, there just seems to be a big thing in the United States with a kind of, well, personal liberties is a big thing. So if mm -hmm. if it's perceived that the government is sort of infringing on those those liberties by saying, oh, we must, you know, not do X, Y, and Z uh, in order to curb climate change, then that's something that, yes, tends to get that kind of rise from people that you wouldn't really see in Britain. How about political correctness? Uh, political correctness is a big deal in our society, as, as you know, by being a, a newcomer to our country. I just learned uh, you can't say pygmy now. You have to say rainforest hunter-gatherers. Would that be similar in Britain, or, or is there a difference in the sensibilities now about being politically correct? I think that because we live in a, a globalized society and one that is connected specifically by social media, um, those kind of things are similarly happening in Britain as well, uh, mm -hmm. sort of an attention to political correctness and also a backlash against it. So you've got this sort of ideological conflict that goes on online. Um, it might be about different terms. It might be in, in relation to different groups of people than it would be in the United States. But the fundamentals of that conflict are still there, I think, from what I can gather. Lawrence Brown's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He brings a lighthearted British perspective to celebrating the differences between jolly old England and his home in America. He posts frequently to YouTube at lostinthepond.com and on Twitter at lostinthepondus. His topics might compare the square shapes of most U.S. counties with their wiggly counterparts in England, the unique ways we celebrate holidays, and the differences from road signs to snack foods you might find on either side of the Atlantic. We have a dynamic in our country now that's uh, it's quite extreme with you know the division in our political world. You know, there's uh, half of our country embraces uh, Donald Trump and, and that kind of thinking. How does that show itself in Britain? What is the Trump of Great Britain? I, I wouldn't necessarily jump straight to Boris Johnson, although the physical comparisons can be made. But I think just the sort of the ideology that comes with something like Brexit, where you've got figureheads who are using kind of demonstrable lies uh, to push an agenda, and people may buy into that. And that agenda, uh, most recently, during the Brexit campaign, um, was pertaining to things like funding for the NHS will go if 
the EU is uh, gets its way. Um, and we were all kind of stunned, you know, because we could mm -hmm. see in real time that these were falsehoods. And, um, you know, you're mm -hmm. either going to believe it or not, but we just so live truth, in that world. Truth has yeah. been bent in the political landscape of Britain, just like it has in the United States. It has, yeah. And I've most prevalently seen that through social media. And I think that if you're going to tell a lie, a political lie, and it gets to 20,000 likes or shares, then you're going to keep doing that because it seems popular. And that just seems to be what's been happening yeah. these last few years. One thing I like about your, your uh, YouTube channel is you talk about things that we don't normally think about talking about. Um, passing gas and burping. People don't talk about that between cultures much. What's your take on that from a British point of view compared to your experience now as an American? That's a really good question because I think that there is, we, we love our toilet humor in Britain. It's almost kind of a, an icebreaker in many ways. And it's also the sort of one of the chief drivers of British comedy uh, and has been historically. In the United States, I even had an experience in Indiana where I kind of told a joke that was, it was mild, you know, it was just toilet based and um, it was just met with the words TMI, the letters TMI. <laughs> TMI. Do you have that same experience, uh, phrase in, in Britain? You know, I don't remember. And that's the other thing. There are some things I don't remember about Britain. Yeah. And TMI would be one of them, I suppose. People are not usually uh, too bothered, though. So I think that TMI as a concept, never mind a phrase, is probably quite lacking there. Oh, I can never get TMI when I'm traveling. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lawrence Brown. His YouTube channel is Lost in the Pond. And he's working very hard to help Americans better understand America from a British perspective. Lawrence, I could talk to you forever. This is just, for me, a fascinating topic. I was just thinking, with all of your experience, what would you advise uh, one of your uh, English countrymen who was coming to the United States for a great time? What's a good tip you'd give them to better enjoy our culture? It's a good question. I think don't believe what you've seen on television and open yourself up to new possibilities and just understand that things really are quite a lot bigger here, physically bigger. And it doesn't just stop at the size of the United States, but uh, we are talking about uh, portion sizes as a good example. Because when I visited the United States in 2004, before I'd even moved here, I asked for a kid's ice cream in Massachusetts, and they gave me what looked to me uh, medium to large. And uh, that was kind of an eye-opening thing. So I think expect the unexpected, uh, but enjoy the unexpected. That's one of the great things I think about living here because it is so uh, strikingly diverse in, in so many ways. And I would say also to not underestimate how fascinated and curious Americans are about Britain. So come and be prepared to share about your culture as much as you'd like to learn from our culture. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, America is packed full of Anglophiles. I think that's evidenced by the fact that most of my following, 84%, are Americans. Um, they're fascinated with all facets of it, it seems like. Usually the romantic facets, so the lovely countryside and the royal family and all of the sort of iconic symbols like post boxes and telephone boxes. Um, but there is there is massive interest in here in British life. I think people would find it bloody interesting as long as you don't get your knickers in a twit and you're being gobsmacked because with the right attitude, everything is just brilliant. You said it better than I ever could. That was amazing. <laughs> All right. Hey, Lawrence Brown, thank you so much and best wishes with your YouTube work, uh, your channel, Lost in the Pond. Thanks, Rick. Mad,
Lawrence confesses what he missed most about Britain after he first moved to America in an extra to today's interview. You can hear it from a link in this week's show notes. It's on our website at ricksteves.com slash radio. Hear about the fun side of learning to speak Arabic. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Hello, my name is Holger Zimmer. I'm from Berlin, and I'd like to introduce a little German-sounding, very nice German-sounding poem uh, written by an Austrian poet called Ernst Jandl. It's called Otto's Mops. Otto's Mops trotzt. Otto. Fort Mops. Fort. It's about this dog, a pug. Otto's Mops hopst fort. Otto is the owner of the pug, and he kind of doesn't like what the dog did. So, so. Otto holt koks. Otto holt obst. Otto horcht. So he said, okay, go away. Just leave me alone. But then the owner gets kind of lonely. He thinks like, oh, you know, I'd rather want to have him back. You know, come, come back. You know, come, Mops. Mops, Mops. Otto hofft. Come, come back, Pug. Come, Mops, come. Then he actually comes at some point. Otto's Mops kommt. But he pukes on the carpet. Otto's Mops kotzt. And then Otto is like, oh, God, oh, God. What? Oh, my. What happened? Oh, God, oh, God. So that's kind of like the sense, if you want to find sense. But I just love it for the sounds. It didn't take long before Zora O'Neill realized that the classical Arabic she was studying didn't really help her to converse with the average Arab speaker of the 21st century. She knew she had to travel to understand how the language is spoken today. She went to four different regions where Arabic is the lingua franca to get acquainted with the local dialects. Studying the way a language is spoken in the streets and in the marketplaces turned out to be the key to getting an inside track on the countries of North Africa and the Middle East. Zora's language adventures took her to Egypt, the Gulf states, Lebanon, and Morocco. They're detailed in her book, All Strangers Are Kin. Zora joins us from the studios of KRWG in Las Cruces, New Mexico. It's an interview we recorded before the COVID pandemic. Zora, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, now what a fascinating opportunity as a, a traveler and a linguist to be able to sort of analyze how the dialects give us different insights into these different cultures. Now, first of all, what is the Arab world? And, and talk about its uh, diversity. Well, in general, I think people think of it as everywhere from Morocco in the west all the way through the Persian Gulf on the east and then up into Syria and Iraq. In Arab nationalist terms, the Arab world is anywhere people speak Arabic. Of course, in reality, it's 22 different countries, I think, where Arabic is spoken and the cultures in each of those places are very distinct, and the dialects are also quite distinct. So when I was working on this book, I was kind of looking at the dialects as standing in a little bit for the cultural differences in the countries. So people can maybe start to think about Arab worlds, plural, instead mm. of the Arab world, singular. Now, isn't that interesting? Because we always hear of it in a singular term, there's a lot more to it than that. And in your book, you talk about, you know, covering what the headlines miss about the Arab world. What's the danger of Americans uh, assessing, what, what, 300 million people or something by the headlines we read? Well, 
As I say in the introduction to the book, the news is, by definition, the abnormal thing. If we go only by what we read about in the news, we are not getting anything about normal life in the Arab world or worlds. We're only seeing the explosions and the revolutions and the terrorist activity, all the bad news, but we don't ever get a very clear picture of what people do on a day-to-day basis. And when you read the news here in America, we know Americans and we know that whatever bad thing has happened that we read about in the news is not normal because we know our neighbors and we know we know our fellow citizens. But without that background about the Middle East, it's harder to make that judgment and we don't necessarily even know we're misjudging when we go just by what we read in the news. Now, the premise of your book is that by understanding the different dialects of Arabic, you can actually get insights you wouldn't get otherwise in the countries that you visited. And you cover specifically Egypt, the Persian Gulf states, Lebanon, and Morocco. Let's jump right in. In Egypt, what's an example of an interaction you had or or a lesson you learned because you understood the fine points of the language? Well, I talk a lot in the book about how Egypt is sort of notorious across the Arab world for having a great sense of humor and being very, very quick to make jokes and banter. And when I went to Egypt, I kind of had the goal of of wanting to participate in that kind of banter. Like there's a certain level of fluency you have to have in a language before you can make jokes with people. And so I decided because Egyptians really valued jokes, I would try for that. And once I had succeeded at that, then I would say like, I've interacted. Hmm. So you, you could tell a joke to an Egyptian in his dialect? Maybe not at this very moment, but at the time, I was able, there was a kind of a funny exchange when I went to this camel market outside of Cairo that's sort of way, take this really beaten down train, and then I kind of flagged down a pickup truck to ride the rest of the way on the pickup truck, and when I climbed in the truck, I ripped open my pant leg, which was like this bit of a disaster, and it was me, and there was one other woman on the truck, and she was like, oh my god, goodness, we have to cover up your pant leg. So I was very much this object of of hilarity when I climbed on pure slapstick, but by the end of the ride, I had made some jokes about, like, oh, this engineer, this brilliant engineer is helping me fix my pant leg, the other woman, and, you know, called her this very funny formal title. That must have been striking for them to be bantering with an American, what seemed like an American tourist. Right. And they loved it. There was lots of like, oh, are you, a, do you have a doctorate in camelology? This whole funny exchange. They would actually say that um, in, in yes. Arabic. Yeah. And you could yeah, understand and, it. And I was like, yes, I understand. These are words I understand in this context. And it was really gratifying. Now, you said about how a lot of Americans jump to conclusions about certain phrases that we hear. And uh, you said, uh, Allah Akbar. You always hear that before they'll send off a bomb or something like that. Mm. It really just means, oh, my God. Would she have said Allah Akbar in that sort of a case? It's more an exclamation of delight or astonishment. I was in Morocco and I was at somebody's house and I was watching TV and I was watching the Arab version of The Voice, you know, the singing competition TV show. So a contestant is singing and one of the judges gets so excited, he jumps up in his chair and he's like, Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar, in this like very theatrical sort of over the top way. So I think that's like the opposite pole of how you usually hear the phrase Allahu Akbar on the news. In uh, Italy, I think you'd hear Dio. Oh, really? Yeah. And and it's just, oh my God. Zora O'Neill was raised in Albuquerque. 
She wrote the Moon New Mexico guidebooks for many years, as well as a book called How to Throw a Dinner Party Without Having a Nervous Breakdown. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, Zora's telling us about her adventures traveling in the Arab world, which she describes in her 2016 book, All Strangers Are Kin. It won the Best Book Award from the Society of American Travel Writing. Her website is ZoraO'Neill.com. So the game show you were talking about, is, is that a pan-Arabic game show or just Morocco? Yeah, it's produced in one of the Gulf countries and satellite broadcast around the Arab world. So the Arab world is tied together with media, but they would have different dialects for local productions. Yeah, definitely. And that's been an interesting change in the time since I first started studying Arabic. In the early 90s, the formal Arabic that I studied in school was still very much the lingua franca across the Arab world. And if people understood another dialect from what they spoke natively, it was usually Egyptian because the Egyptians were kind of the rulers of the media scene and they produced all the movies and all the really popular soap operas and things like that. So I studied Egyptian dialect in college because the idea was I might not be able to understand other people, but they would be able to understand me. Now, satellite media is much more common, and you get a lot more input from other countries. So I was in Morocco sitting with my host sister at the place I was staying, and we were watching a Turkish soap opera that was dubbed in Syrian dialect, and she was following it. You mentioned uh, Egypt is so important culturally and so on. I got a sense when I was in Egypt that they are more important culturally, but they're not quite as impactful today because they don't have the economy that Iran or Saudi Arabia would have because those countries have oil and Egypt doesn't have oil. Do you get a sense that, that Egypt is more important culturally than, than we would gather from reading the newspaper in the Arab world? Yeah, definitely. It's a touchstone for medieval Arab history and, of course, for its ancient Pharaonic history, although that aspect of it really matters mostly to Egyptians. But would you say Cairo is the leading city in, in the... Well, among Cairo the... likes to think it's the leading mm. city. I think it's definitely in the balance now. And a lot of Egyptians now go to work in Gulf countries because they have to. Right. And there is a bit of resentment toward Gulf Arabs because they're wealthy and then they come to Egypt on vacation and, mm -hmm. and they invest in strange real estate developments and things like this. So there's some tension there. A friend of mine in Cairo was like, oh, who are these people? Like... What are these cities? They have nothing. Yeah, these They're, nouveau riche kind of cities. Exactly. And and Cairo likes to, Kyrenes are very proud of calling their city Umm Dunya, which means mother of the world. You know, for centuries, it really was this center. So it must be a little bit of an adjustment for them. It's kind of like the French used to be, you know, the dominant culture in Europe, but they've sort of mm. fallen behind and it's difficult for them. And I, I would imagine it's the same way for Egypt because they're being eclipsed by countries that are a little... They don't have the depth of history, but they got all of this power because of their oil wealth. Yeah, although there is also a resigned attitude in Egypt, too. Like, oh, these upstarts, mm -hmm. you know, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, what are these cities? They're only 40 yeah. years old. A right. friend of mine actually criticized Kuwait and Dubai because in Arabic, the word form is a diminutive word. Hmm. <laughs> he was like, Kuwait, what is this? A diminutive, like, how can that be the name of a country? This very funny little linguistic dismissal of a whole country. Of an entire but country. Yeah, but, you know, Egyptians have the long view on history. So they're like, oh, what are these cities? You know, they might be something now, but 
in another five few thousand, hundred years, five thousand Cairo years of will civilization still be here. There, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I mentioned uh, Iran a minute ago, throwing it into the mix, but making the mistake a lot of Americans make. Uh, Iran is Muslim, but it is not Arabic. They're Farsi, and that would be distinct from the Arabic countries, right? Yes, very much so. So we have to distinguish the Muslim world stretches all the way to Malaysia or the, or the Philippines from Morocco, but the Arab world is, is different than that, and that would go only as far as Iraq in the, uh, in the east and Morocco in the west. Yeah, I always think of it as a whole series of little Venn diagrams about, like, you know, the Arab world is often equated with the Muslim world, but as you said, the boundaries are very different, and a lot of people, of course, assume that Arab equals Muslim, and that's not true either. Definitely there's, not the case. There's a very large Christian population in a lot of different countries, and Jewish as well. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Zora O'Neill. Her book is called All Strangers Are Kin, talking about adventures in Arabic and her travels through the Arab world. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Patrick's calling in from Indian Town in Florida. Patrick, have you uh, lived in the Arab world? Yes, uh, we lived in Jordan for two years and also in Tunisia for eight years. And what is your sense of the, the different dialects and how the dialects give you a little insight into the cultural diversity? Well, I mean, first of all, we almost had to relearn the language from going to Jordan to Tunisia. But maybe one of the frustrating things about the different dialects is the, the big difference is like what you first say to people when you meet them like greetings and things like this. That's kind of different. Also, in North Africa, there's a whole lot of French that enters into the language, even like French verbs that act like Arab verbs. Now, what's the difference in the way you would greet people, Patrick? Let's see. In Jordan, you would say uh, marhaba, almost like in Turkey. In Tunisia, you would say aslama. What are the different meanings from those? Okay, uh, marhaba is kind of like you're welcome. And then aslama is just with peace. It's almost like aslama legum or something like that. Just a short version. And also how you say, how are you? In Jordan, you say kifak. And in uh, Tunisia, you say shnohoelik. If you speak one dialect, are you able to get along in, in the next dialect? Or does it render you sort of in the dark? I mean, I was always able to talk to people wherever I went. But there would always be a little bit of confusion. You always have to think, what are some specific words from that country they would not know? Like Tunisian, there's several words I, I know never to use with another Arab. So now, Zora, from your book, it says, uh, what, it takes seven years to learn Arabic and then a lifetime to perfect it. It must be frustrating when you learn Arabic and then you go across a border and all of a sudden you realize, oh, they speak a different dialect. Is there a sort of a classic fundamental Arabic that is the linguistic common denominator across all of these lands? Yes, and yeah, Patrick expressed it very well, how disappointing it is because the basics are also different everywhere you go. But the core, especially when you get into more abstract discussions, the vocabulary is similar, and that all derives from classical Arabic, which Arabs call fosha, which means the eloquent, sort of the most eloquent language. And people don't natively speak that. No one does. But you learn it in school, and you learn it through listening to the news. The news is kind of that artificial language. Hmm. People are mostly just reading off of cue cards, and preachers speak fosha. Oh, really? So if you go to a a service at a a mosque, they'll speak some sort of classic Arabic that is 
far from what the people will be speaking afterwards? It's like old Catholic service would have been in Latin. In a way, it's not as foreign to people as that, mm-hmm. and not at all as foreign as that. I mean, people okay. can sort of understand it. Patrick, thanks for your thanks for your call, Patrick. Oh, you're welcome. It was nice to talk to you. Take Zora. care. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Zora O'Neill. Her book is All Strangers Are Kin. Zora, one of the big lessons I learned when I was traveling in the Muslim world was the whole death to America thing is just a literal translation of damn. And people say damn, and then when they try to translate it, it comes out death too, because damn is like die and go to hell or something like that. Does that make any sense to you? I mean, if somebody says death to America, and you understand the the nuances there, does it change it in any way? That's an excellent point. I mean, again, that's a dynamic in Farsi. And I too was so relieved and yet somehow not so surprised to learn that. Yeah, that basically this whole rhetoric has been built up in this translation and not what it means to the people who are saying it. And Arabic has a lot of that as well. I mean, as we you were talking about earlier, this Allahu Akbar, the way things sound to us is is not a great representation necessarily of what it means when someone says that in Arabic. A lot of people hearing Arabic will think, oh, they're very religious because they're saying Allah all the time. And Allah just means the God, like the one and only God. It's not the name of God or anything like that. And there are so many formulaic sort of natural formulas in your day-to-day routine speech that use Allah in them. And it really is no different from us saying, like, bless you when you sneeze. Yeah, when we say bless you, it's not a religious thing for most people, but it sounds no, religious to somebody. No, but of course somebody. it yeah. is. Yeah, That's of course it's derived from God bless you. We just leave off the God part now. I mean, somebody who was not from our culture, if somebody, if somebody sneezed and somebody else said God bless you, they'd think you were very seriously religious when you say mm, that every time right. somebody sneezes. And in actuality, it has nothing to do with that. And you're saying this whole Allah business would be similarly misunderstood by somebody not really understanding the Arabic culture. I was in Morocco, and uh, my guide was hollering at a guy, and he just he didn't know what his name, but he said, Hamid, like Mohammed. And I said, did you know his name? And he says, no, we just you call people Bub or, or Hey Joe. <laughs> and in Morocco, they just call anybody Mohammed. <laughs> right. Pretty good guess. Yeah. I mean, it's right. just a lot of people are, but that's just, they just do that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just uh, say goodbye in Arabic. Can we? How, how would you say goodbye, God be with you, happy travels? What, what would be the typical farewell? So the most traditional one in most countries is ma'asalama, which means go with peace. Go with peace. Very good. And then in Egypt, you'd add boy boy. Boy boy? Ma'asalama, boy boy. Boy boy. All right. <laughs> Thank you very much, Zora, and best wishes with your book, All Strangers Are Kin. Thanks so much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Amara Kitnikone and Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We had editing help this week from Sarah McCormick. Read what Rick's been thinking about lately on Facebook and Twitter, and you can find out more about our guests each week on our website at ricksteves.com radio. 
We'll look for you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves, and I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com.